signs would precede his return to set up his kingdom here on earth. These signs, he said, would all take place following the rapture and the final seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. It has been a fascinating series of studies. Verse by verse is sustained by the prayers and financial gifts of listeners who have been blessed by these radio broadcasts. Would you consider becoming a prayer and financial partner of this ministry? You may contact us through our website, versebyverseradio.org. And you can also call us at 727-239-0306 or email us at contact at versebyverseradio.org. Your interest and concern to keep these broadcasts on the air is vital to continuing this ministry. We would be very grateful for your participation. Now with today's class, here is Pastor Steve. See, there are some who contend that when Jesus spoke about the fig tree, he was using it in a symbolic way as as representing the nation of Israel. The budding nation of Israel, if you will. Therefore, they believe his statement about the budding of new leaves was a reference to Israel becoming a budding new nation, which did take place in May of 1948. Therefore, Based on this interpretation, the generation that sees the rebirth of Israel won't die is then taken to mean that since a generation, they say, those who hold to this, a generation is about 40 years, then Jesus was saying that he will return sometime between the years 1948 and 1988. But 88, 1988 has come. It's gone. And Jesus didn't return. Now, some who hold to this view try to get around this by saying, well, it's not that sure that 40 years is a generation. It could be more. It could be 80 years, maybe even longer. One well-known Bible teacher who espoused this view was Hal Lindsey, the author of the popular book back in the 1970s called The Late Great Planet Earth. Lindsey believed and taught that the fig tree represented Israel and that the rebirth of Israel was the official countdown to Christ's soon return, and that the generation viewing all the events from 1948 on would not die out until Christ returned. Now, how do we know that this isn't what Jesus meant? How do we know that? How do we know that this isn't what Jesus meant in the parable of the fig tree? Because, frankly, there is an example in the Gospels, at least on one occasion that we know of, where Jesus did use a fig tree very clearly to speak of Israel. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just tell you from Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 11, verse 14, we're told that Jesus cursed a fig tree because it was fruitless. It bore no fruit. It wasn't that he was agitated because he couldn't eat that day from its fruit. No, he cursed it as a way of conveying the spiritual lifelessness of the nation of Israel and God's coming judgment upon the nation for her spiritual barrenness. So, it is true that there were times that Jesus spoke of the fig tree in reference to Israel. But that doesn't mean that every time a fig tree is mentioned in Scripture or used by Jesus, it always referred to Israel And there's very good reason why we know that here in Matthew 24, this parable, Jesus wasn't using 
the fig tree as a symbolic reference to Israel. Why do I say that? How can we know that? Because there is what's called a parallel passage. A parallel passage is in another gospel account. One of the gospel writers, in this case Luke, gives us information that Matthew does not give us. We get a a broader picture in Luke 29, or 21 rather, verse 29. Luke quotes Jesus as saying, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. That's a significant statement in all the trees. See, the Lord was just using the fig tree as representative of all fruit trees, not as a specific symbol of Israel. He's just talking about all the fruit trees, the fig tree being an example. Now, if that isn't enough to convince you that the fig tree isn't a picture of the Jewish nation, at least not here, they consider the fact that if Jesus did mean the rebirth of Israel, that nobody would have understood what he was talking about until 1948. And that flies in the face of the purpose of Christ giving parables to believers. Jesus made it very clear in Matthew chapter 13. You can look it up yourself in Matthew 13. He said to you, I speak and I'm paraphrasing. I speak these parables so that you understand about the kingdom. But I speak parables to unbelievers so as to conceal information from them. Parables were confusing to unbelievers, but not confusing to Believers, whenever it was a little hard to understand, Jesus sat down with them and explained the meaning of a parable. Parables are not given to God's people so that we don't understand them. Parables are given for us so that we would understand what he was talking about. Now, if Jesus is talking here about something that nobody would figure out until 1948, then that that is a conflict with the purpose of a parable. Listen, the whole point of Christ's statement about the tribulation generation not passing away until they see all the signs leading up to his return and then the return itself is for them to comprehend that he was giving his people a wonderful promise. This is a great promise, which is specifically that he's not going to stretch out these end time events indefinitely. There's an end. There's an end. See, the disciples wanted to know, when will you appear? That was their question. And the Lord's answer to them is this, soon after the signs take place. In fact, so soon will my coming follow these signs that once they begin to unfold, you can bank on it that my appearance is very close. So close, so close that the generation of believers living at that time won't have time to die off. They will see my second coming. Now, that is the point. Jesus has left us a definite promise that he's coming again and his coming will shortly follow the the end time events that he's outlined up to this point in the Olivet Discourse. And yet, folks, most people living today couldn't care less about Christ's promise concerning his return. Couldn't care less. They're either indifferent to the promise of his coming or they mock it. They scoff it because it just seems completely irrelevant to them. And quite frankly, to some, it seems laughable that God's people, after all of these years, would still be this naive to think that Jesus will return. But regardless of the world's attitude towards the second coming of Christ and that precious promise, The promise of his return is special. 
And it ought to be precious to us. And Jesus affirms his promise, his word, as worthy of complete trust. It may mean nothing to the world. It does mean nothing to the world. It should mean everything to us. In the next verse, the Lord makes a point of telling us that we can count on the trustworthiness, the truthfulness of his words. Verse 35, what a precious truth. Great verse for all of us to memorize and meditate on. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that his words will never fail. All of his words are valid and true, and in particular, these words about his return. The scripture, he said, in another place, cannot be broken. In fact, he tells us here that his words are more stable and more sure and more secure than the continuing existence of the heavens and the earth. Because the heavens and the earth, as we know them, someday will cease to exist As God will, at the end of the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, the millennial kingdom age, bring about, he tells us, a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21, verse 1 speaks of that. 2 Peter 3, 10 speak of that. New heavens and a new earth. So, folks, we can say with absolute confidence that Christ's words are more secure than the very ground that we walk on. Now that ought to make a deep impression upon us as we consider his promise to return to earth. See, in contrast to the world's indifference to Christ's promise of coming back, every Christian ought to be profoundly affected by this truth and should think about it daily. Why is that so important? Because without a constant consciousness of his promise to return, we're all in danger of becoming far too focused on the here and now. And when we do that, we fail to give serious consideration to the glorious truth that for us, there is a better world coming because Christ is coming back again. And the reason it is so important for us to think about his return and to be absolutely convinced of it, to be reminded of it daily, is that The second coming truths are given to us, folks, not so that we can figure out all the end times events, but so it will impact us in a sanctifying way. That is to say, it'll help us in godliness. It'll help us to live properly now. That's the point when Scripture speaks of the coming of Christ. Not that you and I will be able to get all of our charts right, but so that we will live differently. Scripture reiterates that many times. For example, 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, John says, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. John said, we haven't, it hasn't been revealed to us what we'll be like in the future. Exactly. We're the adopted children of God right now. What will we be like when Christ comes? We don't know all the details, but we do know that we'll be like him. We'll be like him in terms of character. It means we'll, we'll never be Christ. We'll never be God, but we will be as perfect as we could be. And then John says, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, this, what, what is the hope? The hope of his return. 
purifies himself just as he is pure, knowing that someday we'll be completely conformed to the image of Christ when we see him ought to motivate us right now to live godly. Listen, John has just come out of the second chapter by telling us not to love the things of the world. Now he writes, the way you, you, you stop from loving the things of the world, even flirting with the things of the world, is purify yourself by focusing on the return of Christ. That's the cure to worldliness. Don't become so attached to this world. Second Peter chapter 3, 13 and 14 tell us essentially the same thing. But according to his promise, Peter says, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we look for. So Peter says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. In other words, since everything's going to be burned up anyway, don't get too attached to it. Don't get so attached to this world. Let it go. See, an understanding that grips your heart about the return of Christ, that's the cure to worldliness. That's the cure to materialism. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. The Hebrew people, these Jewish believers, were very persecuted for their faith. And we we take it from what we read here that there was a government-sponsored persecution. But listen to what the writer, the inspired writer, says about them in verse 32. But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. He says you were persecuted after you knew about Jesus and identified with him, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Now, notice this, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. They took away their property, but he said you accepted it joyfully. Why? The end of verse 34, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's like the government coming and taking away your car or cars and you accepting it joyfully because you know you have a better possession in heaven. So that's the cure. The return of Christ and sanctifying hope in that return to materialism. We're just aliens. We're just strangers passing through. This is the perspective that we need as we as we suffer in this present world. All of us are getting older. We have infirmities. We have all kinds of issues. Listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter eight. For I consider, Paul said that verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But if all you're doing is focusing on the suffering and forgetting that there's a glory that's to be revealed, you're missing it. Listen, Joel Osteen is wrong. This is not the best life now. Not for believers. For unbelievers it is. But not for believers. For believers in Christ, the best is yet to come. Now, as we said before, even though the return of Christ is a precious promise to us, it ought to be a precious promise to us. We ought to let it grip us and sanctify us. It is still true that most people today have not given one moment of thought to the return of Christ. And as we said, some even mock it, laugh at us for being so naive to still believe that promise. But the question I present to you is why has Jesus waited so long? I mean, it's been over 2,000 years and every generation of believers hopes that they're the generation that he's coming for. 
How come he hasn't returned yet? Well, you know what? You can actually thank God that he's waiting to return. Peter tells us why. Let's go back to Second Peter chapter 3. You want to know why it's taken? Well, we consider so long, but God is beyond time. I would say he's out of time, but that sounds like a football game. But God is beyond time. In 2 Peter chapter 3, I won't go through all the passage, but just get to the heart of Peter's answer of those who mock the return of Christ. He says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. That's what people were saying. He's sort of in a mocking way. He's slow. He's delayed. You even hear people today say in a non-mocking way, but they shouldn't use this expression. Well, if the Lord tarries, listen, the Lord never tarries. He knows exactly what he's doing. There's a sovereign timetable that he's operating on. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who's the you he's talking to? His people. He's patient towards you, you believers, not wishing for any to perish. What any is he talking about? Any believer, any of his elect, any of his people. Not talking in general. The Lord is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any of you, the thought is, to perish, but for all of you to come to repentance. What does he mean by this? The Lord hasn't brought about the rapture yet and end time events yet because he's waiting until all those he has chosen and elected to salvation in this present age. He's waiting for them and he knows when they're going to do it and he's designed it all to repent and trust him. His elect people. You see, when the last elect chosen person comes to faith in Christ during what we call this present church age, then and only then he will rapture the church, begin the time of the tribulation, and then in seven years return in judgment over the earth. See, it's his kindness, folks. It's his patience. It's his mercy rather than any slothfulness on his part that has kept him from coming back. Because if Christ had raptured the church several years ago, many of us here would not have been ready. We weren't saved. We weren't rescued from our sins. We didn't know him. We were not ready to stand before a perfectly holy God because we were not forgiven of our sins. And we were not legally declared righteous in his sight. We were lost in our sins. We were dead in sins and trespasses. We would have been sentenced to hell forever. But you have trusted Christ. And now you've been delivered from the penalty of your sins. You are ready should Jesus come call us home. You are ready to stand before him, before this perfectly holy God, without any fear of condemnation and judgment because you know that Christ has been judged in your place. You have no fear. You're ready. But not everybody is. Not everybody is. Is it true that all of us sitting here today are ready? I don't think so. I don't think so. In an audience this size, there are always people who are not ready for death or the return of Christ because they are not right with God. They're not right with God. So how do you get right with God? You believe on Christ in the sense that you believe and trust him 
as the one who died in the place of sinners like you, like me. And seeing that his death on the cross was not punishment for anything he had done, but punishment as God poured his wrath out upon his own son who took the place of sinners like us. And you recognize your sinful condition. You recognize that you have been living just for yourself. And you repent of your sin. And you trust Christ as your Savior and your Lord. When that happens, you're ready. Then you're ready. Then you say, even so, come Lord Jesus. And if you already know the Savior, then I urge you, believe His Word. His Word about His return. Take those words to heart. They'll never pass away. And let them impact you the way the Lord intended them to impact you. The way you live, the way you think, the way you look at life, and especially adversity. Let's bow for prayer. If you've never trusted the Savior, you're lost. You're lost. You need to be saved and rescued by Him. You, you can't do anything to earn that rescue. He's done it all. Turn from your sin of glorifying yourself. Turn to Christ. Trust that His death was for you. Be saved today. Father, thank You. Thank You that You have presented us, You have allowed us to study these words today, the words of Your dear Son. Pray that You'll open the eyes of our understanding. And Lord, may the return of Christ be so real to us, so precious, that when we awake in the morning, we'll think about it. Throughout the day, we'll think about that He could come for us at any moment. When we go to bed at night, we'll think about it, and on and on the cycle continues. Lord, I pray we'll be thinking and talking about this even at lunch. I pray we'll be uh, conscious of this great truth throughout our days so that we might know the purifying effect of this precious promise. Lord, thank you. that Something that the world scorns and is apathetic towards, so precious to us. We say with the Apostle John, even so... Come, Lord Jesus, and we pray this in your name. Amen. It's been great having you along for today's class. If you have any questions or comments, please contact us by calling 727-239-0306. We're here to help you in any way we can. Our website is versebyverseradio.org, and our mailing address is Verse by Verse Ministries, P.O. Box 5884. Clearwater, Florida, 33758. That phone number again is 727-239-0306. On our next Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue his in-depth study of the Olivet Discourse from Matthew 24 with a message entitled, The Time of Christ's Return. Plan to be here with us. Thank you again for your prayer and financial support. I'm your announcer, Jerry Putin. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. 
It's Andrew Southwick back with you. And we're continuing our walk through the Bible in a year with Strength Between Sundays. And we're in Exodus chapter 7. This is where the plagues begin on Egypt. God has sent Moses and his brother Aaron to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Now, because Pharaoh's heart was hard and refused to receive the message from Moses and Aaron, God sent a series of plagues on Egypt, but still Pharaoh resisted. All of us have areas in our lives where we resist God's direction. If your heart is hard toward the things of God today, I pray that the Holy Spirit would soften your heart and draw you to Him. Moss Nissan is simply the best around. In 2020, we delivered over 6,000 vehicles to customers around Tampa Bay. And every vehicle featured Moss Care, exclusive to Moss Nissan, which provides added benefits such as lifetime oil changes, tire rotations, and much more. And every customer received top value for their trade, the best financing rates available, and our best deal guarantee. Our goal this year is to become the best Nissan dealership in the nation. And with all things being equal, our goal is to never lose your business over price. Moss Nissan, whatever it takes. This is Albert Moeller for townhall.com. As a nation, we have commemorated 58 presidential inaugurations. This week, we mark the 59th. 